Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my special guest, Keith Sharp, from the iconic Canadian music magazine, Music Express. We'll be talking about his many experiences in the Canadian music scene over many decades. Uh, Keith has a lengthy list of accomplishments that is an integral part of the Canadian musical landscape with countless stories to tell. So we look forward to hearing some of them. Uh, thanks for joining me today, Keith. How are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. Great talking to you. Great. Well, I realized when I was doing my research and, of course, reading your book, uh, preparing for the interview, that I could probably talk to you for about three days. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and you got lots of stories to tell. So uh, I can tell by your accent you were born in England. Yeah, Manchester. Yes. Now, the interesting thing about the book, and we'll talk about that coming up, but you sent me some chapters that were left out of the book. Right. And, and, of course, the first one is about your history and, and growing up and your influences and listening to Little Richard and, and Buddy Holly and all the American artists and stuff. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Well, yeah. Uh, my parents married when they were very young. My dad was 19. My mom was 17. And they were big on ballroom dancing. And the whole you know music around the house, they had all the old 78 bauxite records and things, you know, with the... Uh, Fats Domino and all those people. And uh, I just grew up in that environment, Elvis Presley and stuff. And, uh, you know, literally from day one, uh, I was interested in music. And, of course, at that time, the Beatlemania thing was happening and, uh, you know, music was happening all over the place. So it was just a, a great time to uh, to be in England at that time. Absolutely. Well, the Beatles, I mean, they were world-changing. They changed the world of music. Do you think there could ever be another Beatles? Uh, no, it, it was interesting, though. It's a story there. Uh, the very first time that they were on television was on a show called Scene at 6.30, which is like a Manchester kind of evening news thing, and they promoted local bands. And they made a bit of a fuss about this band called The Beatles from Liverpool. So my dad and I watched them, and they came on, and they did that song uh, that this boy, that, sorry, that boy, mm-hmm. really slow one. And my dad and I look at each other going, oh, don't rate these guys. <laughs> and then the yeah. following week, they, there's another show that David Frost put on called uh, That Was The Week That Was. It was like out of London. And they did a big thing about Beatlemania and stuff and all the Beatles and Jerry and the Pacemakers and all those bands. So then we went, oh, maybe maybe something happening after all. And then, of course, from that point on, we tuned in and saw how they evolved. Yeah. Well, certainly. And it's funny because I've had that conversation with a number of people. They had a radio um, question one time, who's better, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? <laughs> and it was a bit of a joke because I, I ended up calling in and then Terry David Mulligan called in and said, well, there's no comparison. You know, that the Beatles, the, the melodies that they wrote and, and the innovation that they brought to the table was really unparalleled up to that point. And, and I don't think it's been matched since then. Would you agree with that? Oh, I would. I mean, again, just just a volume of, of songs that they had hits with and the fact that they actually wrote a bunch of songs for other people. I mean, the, the thing that people don't realize is that they really were only active live for about four years, from like mm-hmm. 62 to 66, whereas, of course, the Stones have just been ongoing. So you kind of wonder what it would have been like if the if the Beatles actually had a proper sound system and, and actually been able to perform live. So right. I think you know when you get into live performances, it's a bit of a hard comparison. But music music content you you can't compare. 
Well, I think that's right. You know, and some of the young people, sorry to get off on a tangent here right away, but uh, but I wanted to ask you about the Beatles because some young people say the Beatles are overrated and what they don't realize is that the melodies that they wrote, like that's one of the problems I find with pop music now is there's not strong melodies, but the melodies that the Beatles wrote, I don't think could ever be matched again with, with so many and so good. Well, I agree. And again, the timing was right. I mean, the thing about yes. it was, I mean, you had, you know, that kind of like uh, early 60s British movement and when they were looking for something, you know, to they, they'd been listening to American music for such a long time. They were, they were looking after their own thing. And when Beatlemania popped up, then... London had their bands, Birmingham had their bands, bands, Newcastle had their bands. Mm. It all just kind of all ha- you know, exploded at once. And then when they came over to America, I think the Americans realized, okay, it's something different and fresh about the attitude of people, you know, like the Beatles and then, you know, Dave Clark Five and the Stones and even other weird ones like, you know, Herman's Hermits and Freddie and the Dreamers and bands like that. But just there was that, you know, explosion of British bands. And if you had a British accent and could play a guitar, you got a gig somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, it certainly was it was a big impact. And then for you, I guess, so so you had an interest in music, but it must have been somewhat of a circuitous, a circuitous route for you to come from England, to end up in Canada, to end up in Calgary as a sports writer. Yeah. And then to make the bridge to uh, to music, I guess it was full circle for you at that point. Well, it was. I, I, I emigrated with my family when I was 14. Mm-hmm. And in England, my two big passions were music and, and football, soccer. And, uh, you know, I came over and, you know, we, we emigrated, landed into a place called Sault Ste. Marie. And then we moved to a small place called Elliot Lake. And I started writing for the local newspaper in Elliot Lake. Then I went to college in North Bay and then I got a job in Calgary. And I, you know, I was like just, just, to, just over 17 when I started working at the Calgary Herald and I was the junior sports writer there. So I got all the stuff that all the senior people didn't want. And one of those uh, assignments was the Calgary Stampede Rodeo, which of course is the big thing in Calgary. Yeah. But I mean, when you're actually covering the actual rodeo itself, I mean, you're tromping through, you know, bull crap all bloody day, yeah. talking yeah. to all these Texan cowboys who listened to my accent and just shook their heads and walked away like, what the hell is this British guy doing talking about rodeo? So after about three years of doing that, um, I wanted, you know, I was going to do the road the stampede again, but I thought, can I do something different? So I said, well, why don't I do the entertainment stuff at night? And mm-hmm. and the entertainment guy was a guy called Eugene Chadburn, who was a strange guy because he didn't really like pop music, and he was mm-hmm. always trashing stuff. And he went, yeah, fine, go ahead and do it. So there's a band called Stampeders, who uh, you know were from Calgary and they've done well in, in Toronto with, you know, Sweet City Woman and all yeah. those songs. And they were coming back to Calgary to headline at the Stampede Rodeo uh, night show. So it, oh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cover the night shows. So I did like a full interview with the Stampeders. And the odd thing was they performed on the Thursday, but the story wasn't running into the newspapers until the Saturday. Hmm. So fine. But the problem was that this Eugene Chadburn guy reviewed the Stampeders and absolutely trashed them. Oh, I mean, you don't do that. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, trashing Bruce Springsteen in New Jersey or something. You <laughs> just don't do that. 
But what they did was, because it was such a you know severe trashing, they pulled my story out of the Saturday newspaper and had me call the manager, Mel Shaw, and explain why he got pulled. And, of course, I did. And he kind of understood. But I was determined to get that story published. So the Calgary Herald is the Western Bureau for Canadian Press, which is the national news service that you know, services all the newspapers. So I gave the lady at, uh, at the uh, Canadian Press my story. So here, you know, find someone else, you know, someone else will run with it. And she got back to me two weeks later and says, 14 national newspapers ran your story. The wow. only one that didn't was the Calgary Herald. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my kind of impetus to, 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 to launch Music yeah. Express because I went somehow, some way, I'm going to get the story published. Yeah. And, and again, at the time, because all the record companies based in Calgary didn't like this Eugene Chadburn guy, they thought, hey, you know, we can get into the Herald through Keith Sharp. So I had a good relationship with them. And um, a guy called Joe Kelly, who was the guy from Kelly's, uh, sorry, Joe Thompson from Kelly's Records at West, a big uh, Western chain, said, okay, well, we're, we have a big promotion called Rocktober. So why don't you do a magazine and we'll publish it, you know, we'll stick it in the, we'll bag it in, in, our, in yeah. all our stores. So it right. So through the month of July and August and September, I interviewed everybody that came through Calgary. I did, you know, Olivia Newton-John and uh, Backman-Turner Overdrive and Trooper. And, you know, I, I even went up to Ed, yep. uh, Edmonton to interview The Who. And I was supposed mm-hmm. to interview The Who, but Keith Moon went and trashed the, the, uh, the uh, suite at the venue then went back to the hotel and trashed the suite at the hotel. So that got cancelled. So all I could do was a review. Oh. But again, I did all these stories. It was going to be a one-off just to get that Stampede story published. And I think we ran about 10,000 copies and say Joe Thompson put it in like all the Western Canadian record shops. And he came back and said, yeah, it went well. I yeah, love it. You know, uh, and yeah. I'd sent some of the copies out to the record companies in Toronto because Ken Graydon, the guy at Polygram in, in Calgary, said, should service tell people in Toronto what you're doing? And I did that. And then I was getting phone calls back from Toronto going, hey, love it. When's the next one coming out? Like, <laughs> next one? Oh, my God. I, you know, yeah. I never thought about that. But I thought, okay, well, it could be a nice little hobby yeah. on the side from working at the Herald. So I, I did that for a couple of years, and it grew and grew and grew, and eventually – in uh, 1980, we moved to Toronto and set up shop in Toronto. Yeah, and you do explain how all that happened in the book. And it's funny because I always ask people, you know, what, when you had your life plan, was it planned out or did things sort of happen? And and more often than not, things just come along, right? Like what happened with you? Well, sure, I'll write this story. And then one thing leads to another. Well, the thing is, the timing was perfect. You know, 1976, I mean, that CRTC ruling had just come in where all the radio stations had to play 30% Canadian content and they couldn't just play Anne Murray and Gordon Lightfoot records all day. <laughs> they had to come up yeah. with something. That's why all these independent labels popped up and, uh, you know, and, and, and things were happening. And, uh, I mean, I was meeting a lot, you know, I was because of who we were, I was being invited to kind of talk to everybody. And there's some really in- interesting stories. Um, in my book, I talk about meeting Brian Guy Adams for the first time. 
Yes, you do, yeah. And uh, the, the story there was um, our first proper office for Music Express was uh, at the front of a sound and lights company called Northern Sound and Lights. And they had, you know, the full you know, sound system in the back. And, of course, when bands traveled from, like, Vancouver to Calgary in the winter, they crossed the Rockies, so they never brought their gear with them because it was too dangerous. So they'd come to right. Calgary, rent the gear in, you know, Calgary, go and do their world tour of Saskatchewan or somewhere, <laughs> and then come back. And one of the things they did was they put a little concert on just for the industry in the warehouse when they brought the gear back. And one of the bands was Sweeney Todd. Hmm. And I knew Nick Gilder from the original Roxy Roller, but he'd left and they'd replaced him with this other guy called Brian Guy Adams, who hmm. I didn't really know much about him, but they were going to perform at the warehouse. So myself and my partner, Connie Coons, showed up. So we wanted to protect our stuff more than anything. Because <laughs> all these people would be wandering around our office watching the show. Yeah. And we get there, and there's this kid walking around. And Connie, my partner, goes up to him and said, excuse me, Sombra, isn't it past your bedtime? <laughs> that was Brian Guy Adams. <laughs> and he was like 17 at the time. And he just pointed to the poster on the wall, and it was that famous poster of him with the band, you know, the gaslights yeah. and everything. So we got, if wishes were horses. Yeah, if wishes were horses, he'd just done an album. So we got talking to him, and he had a really nice kid. And uh, he said, you know, he just he was at school, writing songs. He'd just been working with his band. And then um, uh, later on that year, uh, uh, there was the first and thankfully last ever Canadian Disco Awards in Vancouver. Mm. And again, it's Ken Graydon. Because Polygram had everybody on the disco scene, so you got to come out to Vancouver. So we went out to Vancouver for the to cover the disco was, and they had bands like the Bee Gees and Village People playing. And I walked into the uh, awards. It was in the afternoon at a Holiday Inn on Seymour Street, and this young guy walks up to me. He's got a suit and tie on, and he says, "Ah, Mr. Sharp," and I went, "Brian Guy Adams," but he was looked totally different. And, oh. and uh, I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I've got, I've got a, a, a single up for a, a disco award. It's called Let Me Take You Dancing. Mm. So I watched it, and I was talking to the, uh, the publisher for A&M. And they're going, oh, yeah, we, love, we like this kid as a kind of a publishing thing. We're not sure about him being a, a live talent, but, uh, you know, you never know. And, of course, suddenly he becomes huge. And I, I had a, a writer in Vancouver called Tom, uh, Tom Harrison who wrote yep. for the Vancouver uh, newspapers. So I said, well, Tom, you know, interview him. So we interviewed him and, and then we'd moved to Toronto and he came to Toronto and did this, you know, debut gig at the El Macambo. Nice. And the following day he played at another place um, called uh, the Jarvis house. And there's like 10 people supping on the drinks and he's there with his band and, He's up on the stairs and he, you know, he said, hey, come and join me. And when I had a drink with him on the stairs and I felt sorry for him because every, no record company people there, just him and his band and 10 people drinking their, their drinks. I went, poor kid, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, poor kid. But anyway, yeah. well, I, you know, I've had a history of working with Brian and I was with him on his first US tour and I was in Europe yeah. with him with uh, when he played in West Berlin and East Berlin. And I can tell you're listeners that brian guy adams is a dual citizen he's not Cana just canadian right and that's because he's got british parents 
After he was born in Kingston, he moved to Europe. And then when his family, when his mom and dad split up, his mom moved back to Vancouver with him and his brother, Bruce. And okay. as a teenager, of course, he was in, in, in Canada. But for the past 30 years, he's lived in, in London. And when I was with him in, uh, in, in East Germany, I saw he was traveling with a British passport. Hmm. So there you go, Canada. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the interesting thing, too, you brought up the CanCon thing, right, and, and the maple with the four requirements to be CanCon. And, and uh, he, he has been able to be Canadian content. But you make you make a good point. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, I, I, again, it's like kind of like you know, again, everyone thinks of him as being Canadian. If you talk to him as Canadian, but the reality is, is that say, is uh, he's lived in England for about thirty years. I think he's yes. got British-born kids. I think his wife's from France. I think, um, and and he does travel with in Europe with a British passport because that's actually a lot easier getting through the customs lines than having a Canadian one. I guess, yeah. And and he still frequently comes back to Vancouver because he owns the studio here. Oh, he does. He does. You know, and he, he'll, he'll never tell you he's British, but I'm, yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> I'm just telling you that. <laughs> no, that's cool. And and so you got to watch. So after he released um, his big album with Summer 69 on it and, and Reckless. those mm. big tunes, you went to the States with him and you actually toured. It's, it's interesting how being a writer, you get to actually go on some of the tours. You traveled a ton. Man, yeah. I, I, yeah, well, that, on that particular tour, it was, it was right at Christmas, and Bruce Allen called up and said, yeah, what are you doing at Christmas? What, nothing. Well, I was actually good. You know, he's doing his very first tour. Uh, so I went with him, and we did, like, Detroit, Cleveland, Philadelphia, uh, New Jersey, and Honeymoon Suite was opening for him. Hmm. And, uh, you know, our uh, run to you was just kind of going down the charts. And Bruce and, and the people from uh, A&M Records were there, and they asked me, said, what do you think should be his next single? And I said, Heaven. And they went, no, that, that has come out as a soundtrack for a movie, and the movie died. I said, yeah, but the song's fine. Mm-hmm. And he just kind of walked away and wondered, and what was the third single? Heaven. And what yeah. was his first number one? Heaven. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that was before Summer of '69. Surprisingly, Summer Summer of '69 was yeah. the fourth single. Yeah, and but that was his real foray into the United States, right? And oh, that's yeah. where he put a, his name on the map in the U.S., right? Yeah, well, I, you know, Tina Turner helped him a lot. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Were they? Yeah. There was some rumor they were romantically involved with. I think, I think Mick Jagger would have had something to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that's it. And then, uh, you, so you put in here how you, you were in Calgary, of course, and there was a, a vibrant music scene in Western Canada. People, Some people may realize that or not, but Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver was a pretty hot spot for lots of great Canadian music came out of that. So you were in Calgary when Loverboy formed. Yeah, well, again, the story on Loverboy was actually um, Streetheart. I, I talked to uh, the keyboard player, Daryl Gothiel, and it wasn't a very good interview. Hmm. So I was over at the house of a, of a Calgary band called Foster Child, right. and Paul Dean was there was from Streetheart. And I said, hey, you know, can I talk to you about the album? Because the Daryl Gothiel interview wasn't very good. And he was great. And he, of course, he had a great story to tell and did the story. And then about a week later, he calls people and says, you know, that story you did about street art? He says, yeah. He says, have you published it yet? 
says, no, he says, well, you're going to have to kill it because I just got fired <laughs> by Streetheart. Uh, and, uh, you know, and he was, you know, really down. He'd been in a bunch of other bands before and he kind of thought Streetheart was his last shot. And I was just kind of cheering him up. And I says, well, what are you going to do? Well, I'm looking for a band. I says, well, Studio City Musical, Musical, the Calgary booking agency, they do this kind of a showcase thing for all the college buyers and high school buyers and all the bands show up to play. And there's always people looking for gigs. I said, why don't you show up? He went, fine, okay. So he showed up and he was with Mike Ronoski. Yes. I, who uh, was, you know, just come back from Moxie and I put the two of them together and they were talking away, blah, blah, blah. And he said, and then there's another guy called Craig Blair who was the bass player. And I put them three together. Hmm. And then they said, okay, we're looking for a keyboard player. I says, well, at Northern Lights and Sound right now, there's a band called All the Rage in Paris. And they have this keyboard player called Dougie Johnson. He might work. So hmm. they checked him out. And next thing you know, they're all together. Wow. And I think Bernie Arbin was the original drummer yeah. who's now with Headpins. And, uh, I, you know, I set them up. And then the, the manager of the Refinery Nightclub, which was the big nightclub, said, well, I've got this empty garage next door. Maybe they can rehearse there. Hmm. So the guys got together and rehearsed. And Lou Blair became their manager. And then he hooked them up with Bruce Allen. And then we moved to Toronto literally right afterwards. And, of course, then Loverboy was farmed. But every time I've talked to, you know, to Reno and Paul Dean, it's been, well, yeah, you know, it's really yeah. great how you kind of motivated. Because Paul Dean needed to, needed to be motivated. He was like down in his, down in the dumps yeah. and everything. And, you know, I, I kind of put that lover boy thing together. Well, and, I'm a, yeah. You know, I'm, uh, as a guitar player, I'm a big Paul Dean fan. I mean, he played great, really strong, the songs they put out. And I think uh, Loverboy far exceeded... Uh, streetheart in terms of record sales and worldwide notoriety would that be correct well they ended up with half the band because because uh, matt frenette the drummer also yeah there you go yeah <laughs> so i think yeah. that's correct i don't know what the exact numbers are but i would say Loverboy would have done better worldwide than streetheart oh yeah even though i'm a oh, fan yeah. of both but uh, yeah yeah well very cool well that's neat to be on the ground floor of that because i guess you're trying to put the the recipe together i mean there's bands everywhere there's musicians everywhere trying to find the right formula and finding that magic is very very difficult to do as you would know right? yeah well we again we kind of you know we were in calgary until you know like end of 79 and it was you know there wasn't really much going on and vancouver was happening and of course toronto was happening so we initially we were initially told by some of the record companies in Calgary in Toronto, don't come to Toronto because we need you out there covering the Western mm -hmm. scene. And of course, there's Bruce Allen with Vancouver. So we actually, my partner and I went out to Vancouver, looking at moving to to, to Vancouver, and was you know got a great reception there, and they actually set up an office for us. Oh. So I came back and said, well, I'm going to go to, to Toronto and tell them we're all moving to Vancouver. So I arrived at Toronto the same day that Toronto's only music magazine, New Music, folded. Oh. And they went, no, 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 you're coming here. Right. We don't want you in Vancouver. We want somebody in Toronto. And, uh, you know, you would be Canada's music magazine. So I went, okay, fine. So I flew back to Calgary and I told Connie, I said, no, 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 we're not going to Vancouver. We're going to Toronto. Yes. So yeah. we moved to Toronto in 1980 and uh, Set up a shop in Toronto. Yeah. Which kind of makes sense. I mean, Vancouver had a vibrant scene. I, I guess the Stampeders ended up going to Toronto to record and do the things that they did. And, and Loverboy came to Vancouver. Brian Adams was out of Vancouver. But it seems to make sense that Toronto would have would have been the place to be 
to be at the center of the Canadian music universe. Well, he was. And, and again, you know, we were sort of like the, the national music magazine. We were the ones talking to everybody. Yeah. And of course, all the majors were there. And of course, most of the major independents were either in Toronto or Montreal. Yeah. And again, it was at the time, you know, Rush, Triumph, April Wine, all those bands. It's exciting, you know, we just man. Had just... Corey Hart. We had loads of stuff to do. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, for about five years or so, we were doing, you know, great. And then we had... Uh, the thing about, well, we were going to do uh, this Live Aid thing came up. Okay. It was, it was sort of strange because, like, initially, in the, I think it was November of 84, we were approached and said, okay, that Bob Geldof is doing this big charity thing and there's going to be a, a, a song and a video. Would we give it some free advertising? No, yeah, sure, fine. So we advertised it. And a, a guy who was the a, a kind of a, a – partner for Music Express, a guy called Alan Gregg. He was also the, the uh, pollster for the Conservative Party with, when Brian Mulrooney was involved. Okay, yeah. And he came to me and said, I've got, okay, it's the Year of the Youth in 1985. Uh, uh, they want to give you $100,000 to put on a big show for, you know, to celebrate Year of the Youth. So, okay, great. What am I going to do with this money? Um, and we thought about it. We'd, we'd actually done these award shows in, uh, um, in, in, in Montreal and Vancouver as opposed to uh, Karras and the Junos. Yeah, I was going to some... ask you about that for sure. Yeah, but... well, okay. Well, we'll get to that first. Yeah. Okay, the, the thing about it was there was a split between West and East in Canada. And the Western bands... And I never thought they got treated properly by an Eastern-based Karis. Oh, okay. And uh, in doing the book and talking to people, and I, I kind of knew about it, what was actually happening was there was block voting going on where, I mean, if, say, like Capital wanted they wanted to win, you know, the top male vocalist, they would ask everybody to vote for that one. Then they would go to Warner and vote for their top group or something. Okay. There was block voting going on. And they were kind of denying it, but everybody kind of knew that. So what, just to what was clarify, happening. this was for the Karis Awards and the Junos. Juno. Well, this is, this is the Junos. Junos this is the okay. Junos. Yeah. So what happened was Loverboy, off their first album, sold some like 200,000 copies and didn't even get nominated oh. for top group. Wow. Because uh, for some reason they wanted somebody else. So Bruce Allen got all upset about it and he told me about it. So well, why don't we just do our own? Because in England, it was the New Musical Express Awards, which was kind of a live show. So if you could just copy that. Um, so we did, um, we got all these radio stations across the country to vote. And we said, okay, well, let's pick a venue that's not Toronto. So we picked Montreal. We did the vote. And I said, we're going to declare the winners in advance. So the winners know they've won and get them there just to perform as winners. And that's what we did. Okay. And of course, Lover Boy, Brian Adams, Darby Mills, uh, Echo, uh, Martha and the Martha Muffins. Muffins yeah. They were all the winners. Uh, but we also had French, French Canadian artists as well. We had Alda Nova and Corbo and a bunch of bands. And we put the light show on live. And we got the guy from uh, 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 the big Moran Heights recording studio to come down and shoot it. And he just got all these toys, you know, to play, to do editing. So he was able to edit like a two-hour show of everything. 
and it was great. And then it was so successful and we had it televised. We did a network of independent stations, including much, uh, including city in Toronto. And it went so well that we then did it again in in Vancouver in 84. Yeah. And Carol's were all upset because we were actually kind of doing something live and we're using videos, which they never used. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it got Bruce to the point that Karras went to Bruce and said, apologize, and they made some changes, and that was different. But in 85, we're going to do, with this 100,000, we're going to do something really big. But then, of course, you know, Bob Geldof decides he's going to do his live aid, and that put everything on hold. Yeah. So I went to uh, to uh, London, and the night before, he did a, p- a press conference, and he said he was how disappointed he was in Canada because Canada didn't do a Canadian live aid, whereas Germany and Russia and Australia all did their own separate shows. Mm. And, of course, Bob Geldof used to write for the Georgia, Georgia Strait magazine in Vancouver. Right. So he knew you know, Canada quite well. And I'm sitting there with $100,000 in the bank and I thought, well, maybe we could do something. But and another thing with with uh, uh, Canadian Live, the, the Bruce Allen's Northern Lights did not organize a telethon. So, and John Martin realized that. John Martin is a guy from Much Music. So he organized a telethon at the last minute from Much Music, which okay. was highly successful. Yeah. But then he had to turn all the money over to Northern Lights at the end of it. And Bruce Allen, of course, took credit for the whole thing. Anyway, uh, quickly, um, I went back to Toronto and I talked to Vinny Sincomani, who was the head of agency, the agency. He said, why don't, we, why don't we do a Canadian Live Aid? And he went, well, fine. And then John Martin was there from Much Music. He said, yeah, we're in. And then CPI got involved and said, well, we're in. And we, you know, we have the stadium. But they said, has anybody talked to Bruce about it? So I thought, well, I want to get everything organized before I talk to Bruce. I called up Bruce, told him about what we were doing. I knew Brian Adams was touring, so I knew he probably wouldn't want to do it. And he didn't say anything. We just put the phone down and called everyone and said, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. So he killed it. He killed it. Hmm. Um, um, so we ended up, we'd already spent $10,000 on a non-refundable deposit for the CNA, and we spent about another 10000 expenses. So I donated the money to uh, Platinum Blonde, who did uh, the sort of big charity concert. Yeah. And, you know, they all got together and talked about it. Said, no, 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 we don't want to do any, any charity concerts. We've, we've done our thing for Live Aid. Well, if you think about it, there was only Brian Adams and uh, Neil Young involved. Yeah, right. But that's yeah. the way Bruce wanted it. So, so that was the end of that. Well, tell me about your relationship with Bruce Allen, because w- when I'm reading through the book, it's like it was a sort of a love-hate thing. Like you got along for a time, and then and then Bruce is pretty caustic, I guess, and pretty outspoken. Well, he, oh, yeah, he, well again, the thing, the positive thing about Bruce Allen is, I mean, Canadian managers rarely made it in America because the Americans always thought they, they, they knew more than Canadians, right? Yeah. Um, and Bruce kind of like. He did a, there's a guy called Don Fox who was a big promoter in Atlanta. And when Backman Turner Overdrive had their big album in America, it used to be that, you know, it was all divided up across America with different promoters. And, and Bruce had had some problems. So he brought Don Fox in and said, Don, you're doing the whole American tour. If these promoters like Ron Dalsiner and those people want to deal with you, or want the band, they have to deal with you. So suddenly, 
that gave him credibility. Okay. And of course, with what he would do with Don Fox was Don Fox, who also managed and, and organized like ZZ Top and Hard in Kansas, he would put Loverboy on opening for them. Right. And and then and that's that's how it, how Loverboy broke in America. Mm-hmm. And then he did the same with Brian Adams. So yeah, so to that degree, I give him a lot of credit. But the problem that's not a problem. I mean, the thing is, Bruce Allen is, you know, kind of the godfather of Canadian music. And if you're working with him, great. But if you kind of go against him, you know, he, he has a problem with that. So yeah. it's kind of up and down, but I think he respects the fact we've always supported his bands. And we certainly supported him in 83 and 84 when Karras was having the big fight with him. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, he's uh, you've got to kind of get along with the guy. But, I mean, he's stumped. You know, he's, he's done okay for himself. Yeah. So, do you did you end with acrimony, or would you talk to him today if you? No, no. I again, I, I talked to Brian uh, late last year. Okay. And I, yeah. You know, I mean, again, again, it's kind of like water under the bridge. We you know, next move on. Yeah. And as it turned out, I mean, that then set us up for the American deal the following year. So, yeah. You know. Well, then that, you realize how, how important we were. Well, and the thing is, it cuts with, with someone like Bruce Allen, it cuts both ways because you need the pit bull mentality. You need that, I'm not taking any crap sort of mentality. And somebody who's willing to yell over the phone to get what he needs. Yeah. But by the same token, there's a downside to that because that person's really intense. And, and you know, obviously the reputation out in Vancouver, I've talked to Bruce a number of times and he, the reputation out here is, you you know, you want him, but but uh, he's he's tough. Oh, he's tough. And then, as I say, you know, I mean, again, there's probably more bands that he's been involved with that haven't succeeded than have. Yes. But the ones that have succeeded, if you look at, say, Brian and Loverboy and Michael Bublé and Jan Arden, yeah. I mean, they've all done really well. So, you, can, yeah. you know, you've got to give them credit. Well, I mean, and, and as I say, I have a lot of respect for him. And Bruce gives a lot of credit to Brian Adams because he said Brian Adams would have been successful at anything he did because he was so intense and so intent on being successful, you know, camping on Bruce's doorstep with his new songs and stuff and just not taking no for an answer. That's right. That, no, I, again, I, I mean, they're still together for all these yep. years. They're still together. So, yep. yeah, these, cool. somebody, somebody's doing something right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So tell me about your, uh, you made lots of connections. I mean, you met countless people. I was uh, quite surprised. I mean, you dropped all the biggest names in the music business and you were talking to them, interviewing them, hanging out with them, touring with them. And then you formed a, a relationship with uh, with Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden that, that uh, ended up uh, flowering. Well, Iron Maiden was all about soccer, football. There's a guy called David Muntz who was Capital Records, and he was the one that signed Iron Maiden to the uh, British deal. Yeah. And when he came over, and you know, and he like he liked what I was doing because he, he reminded me of the British music papers. And he was telling me about this band that he signed called Iron Maiden, and much music had this sort of special on them, you know, from for their first album and stuff. So then Dave called me up and said, "Oh, they're coming over." They're going to do their first ever concert at the Masonic Temple. And uh, I went, great, you know, I'll talk to them. So the thing about with British bands in particular, a lot of them don't want to talk about music. Hmm. But if you can find out what football team they supported <laughs> and start talking football, yeah. you've probably got them, you know, 20 minutes of football. Yeah. And then maybe after that, you know, it's music. And, so and you would have known with, that. So this, what year, yeah. what year would have this have been? 
80. This would have been, uh, no, 1981, okay. I think, something like that. Yeah. So anyway, I'm reading the, the bio for Steve Harris, the bass player, the, the lead guy, yeah. and it says he had a trial with a team called West Ham United. So I get him on the phone, and first time, I go, oh, well, I understand he played for West Ham United, and I actually had a trial with Manchester City when I was in England. So we got talking about football, football, football. Then we talked about the band. And then he said, okay, we actually have a, our, our own football team, West Ham. Uh, I made they're all football players. Wow. So I said, oh, yeah, well, we have a, a football team here, which is a lie. <laughs> we had guys who could play football. So he said, well, we'll have to have a match when you come over. So fine. So we organized, you know, anyone that could play football. There's like Rick Emmett and a bunch of guys. And J.D. Roberts from mm. Much Music at the time, yeah. of course, now John Roberts, said, okay, well, I'll come out and film it and I'll play as well. So we had, uh, you know, so I made him roll up and with the the, the band and uh, the manager who wore that Eddie mask at the time. It wasn't oh, any right. elaborate. It was just yeah. this guy wearing a mask. And we played this kick around match and we all enjoyed it. You know, we, we did a proper match because we knew they had a, gig, a concert the following day. But it was basically a lot of, you know, footage of Steve Harris scoring a lot of goals. Well, they on they would have been serious. A goalie. They were serious oh, players. Very, very serious. <laughs> so we went down and we saw the Masonic Temple gig and, you know, I had a good chat. And he said, hey, every time we come over, we've got, we have to play a football match. <laughs> so we had a whole series of matches because they came right. over and then they played uh, first, I think they played Massey Hall, then they played Kingswood, then they played Maple Leaf, well, what was Maple Leaf Gardens, and then they played the CNA. And every time we had a match against them, wow. and then they had me to go me to go to Europe with them when they toured in uh, Poland and Hungary, and I played in goal for them oh. in a big match in Poland. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. No, that's good. and, and to that day, to that day, and, and again, you know, we've always covered the bands, and uh, I actually was talked to Bruce a little while ago when he did his uh, you know one man show, and yeah. It was, yeah, everything's great. Well, it's neat because you do form people that you have an affinity with and obviously uh, soccer or football, as you say, w would be one of those things. But then you form a friendship and you, and you get to know them as friends as well, right? Well, that's the neat thing. I mean, a, a lot of times it is. It's just a straight, you know, half an hour chat with someone. But when you've actually got, you know, can, can form a relationship, and I'm not saying it's a groupy thing. It's just a kind of respect yeah. thing. I mean, we, you know, we, we've covered them and they appreciate us and, you know, I, recently I did the, 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 these tribute features about the, the magazine and we had so like 40 bands, artists sending a tribute. So, you know, obviously, you know, we've, and again, we've, we've never tried to be controversial. We've always tried to, you know, use our editorial to help bands and they appreciate that. Yeah. And uh, that's where we have the relationship. Oh, interesting. And then, of course, you rub shoulders with lots of them. And, and like as you say, some of them are just one-offs and interviews and you talk and you go. Other people, you, you, it's recurring, right? You see them again. Well, I mean, the, the big help there was our deal in America with music land Sam Goody. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, we went from this, you know, little Canadian magazine to suddenly we were doing 1.3 million copies. Yeah, you launched in, a, in the one, US, right? 1,100 stores in music land Sam wow. Goody. Yeah. And, of course, every, every big American record company wanted the cover. So, of course, the stipulation was you had to do an interview which got interesting when we did Michael Jackson because <laughs> yeah. he doesn't do interviews, but he did one with, I, I, I send the Vancouver guy up because of the way the flights were, but we did an interview with him. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we, again, the whole thing with musical and Sam Goody was, was brilliant. I mean, the way that happened was we were, uh, 
we're sending magazines to this independent guy, a company in New York, and they're using his bag stuffers. And I got a call from this guy from Warner Distributing and the big publishing arm of Warner. And he said, hey, he says, I've got your magazine. He says, would you be interested in launching in America? And I went, why? He says, well, we have Rolling Stone, but Rolling Stone is being hit pretty badly by spin. And Rolling Stone is kind of changing its format to be more of a kind of a lifestyle thing. Would you like to be our music book? So we're going, well, we're too too small. We can't handle it. I went, well, no, yeah, you can. So Alan Gregg, again, my my partner, said, well, let's do it. So we launched in America, but we only picked eight cities to launch it in. And what we did was like Boston and New York and Minneapolis – we actually had a person in that city, in that city, a radio guy, do a column about Boston, about New York, about whatever, to promote you know the local scene. So we, we launched it. We had Van Halen on the cover, nice, and uh, it went great. And they got a call from this guy, uh, Carter Allen in WBCN Boston. He says, "Well, come down. You know, this is a big fanzine kind of a weekend. You know, with the general public, It'd be a great way to promote your magazine." So we went down there, and uh, we set up shop in front of a, a record chain called Strawberries, and we had uh, Platinum Blonde and Wendy Williams come in and sign autographs, and that caused uh, you know a big stir <laughs> and everything. But the funny thing was, the guy from Strawberries came out to initially complain that we were blocking you know, access to his store. And he saw the magazine and he said, hey, you know, how about if we distributed the magazine in strawberries? Mm. But then this other guy came up and says, you don't want to deal with strawberries. They're linked to the mafia. Oh. And I went, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> and then in, in future, re- future research, they were owned by a guy called Morris Levy, yes. who was part of the Genovese family. Yeah. So uh, they went, no, 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 you don't want to do that. So anyway, I'm driving, we're driving back to Toronto from Boston and I've got, I'm reading Billboard magazine and my circulation guy's driving. There's a story about this music line, Sam Goody chain that was expanding across America. We were just taking over our chain in, in California called Licorice Pizza. And the guy featured in the story is called Bruce Jesse. Following day, weird thing happened. Phone call comes in from a guy called Bruce Jesse. He says, oh, you don't know who I am. So actually, I do know you. I was just reading about you yesterday. Hmm. So I'm the market, you know, VP of marketing for Musicland Sound. We want an in-store magazine to rival Pulse magazine that was in Towers. Okay. So we're, yeah, all right. So long story short, we launched the Musicland Sam Goody, Huey Lewis on the cover in uh, '86, and uh, was with them for like six years yeah. and uh, 1.3 million circulation and. Uh, at every major record company paid chasing us for the big stars and a yeah. lot of fun. But, yeah. you know, things come to an end and they, they run into problems and, yeah. um, you know, the record industry is kind of closed down. Yeah. So, so I'm always curious about that too, because when you expand, like, like you get your comfortable market and of course you went from Calgary to Toronto and then you expanded into the U S do you think you maybe expanded too much or that um, you, you weren't as strategic as you might've been about the way it worked? Not really, because the thing was, that after a while, the entire distribution for America was through Musicland. Mm-hmm. And we had, it was on the newsstands in England, it was on the newsstands in Australia. We had a similar situation with A&A Records in Canada. So it's based on the record stores, you know, distributing it. And 
you know, they, they bagged it, but you had to buy something first, right? So there was a value to the magazine. Yeah. So, you know, we didn't, we, we expanded as they expanded. Um, and as I say, we had to like 1,100 1, stores or something. Mm-hmm. But the thing was, when they ran into trouble, it had a kind of a domino effect to, right. you know, to, to their ability to do our magazine. And of course, yeah. when the whole industry collapsed, that was like, you know, we tried to do it for a while with other US chains, but it was never the same. Yeah, okay. And then, uh, you know, we ended up packing it in and so coming what, back to Canada. What I was curious about when I was reading through was wh- where was your revenue stream? Because it, obviously it works both ways. I mean, the record companies were soliciting you because they wanted positive reviews and and the advertising that you could bring because you had you had a lot on the table right you had the yeah. this distribution so and then you're selling advertising i i assume in the magazine but where, where yeah. was the bulk of your revenue coming from the well, well it was yeah it was the advertising and then as i say i mean again um we had all the major advertisers and of course in america all the big record companies were wanted prime positions and they paid prime dollars and yeah i mean say for as, as long as it lasted it was great, but uh, I mean, again, you know, as the economics affected the chain, it also affected us. Yeah, and in the end, they just, they just couldn't continue with it. So, but my my question too was was having the money coming from the record companies an impediment to writing anything negative about the bands or or no know? no well, no but I mean again we weren't trying to be negative. I mean again I mean our whole attitude was I mean. We're trying to be positive. I mean, you get certain magazines. I'm not going to name names, but they made a, you know, it was great that they trashed people. Or they had an attitude. We also felt the band was more important than the writer. So, you know, again, if there, if we just for whatever reason thought they were really bad, we just never interviewed them. But when we interviewed them, we actually felt, you know, that they, uh, you know, that they deserved a, a positive shot. Well, fair enough. But but if, for example, with the with the Mike or the um keith moon story you know if the if the guy trashes the room and shows up on stage drunk i mean there was examples of him where he couldn't he was too impaired to even play shows at times <laughs> right so you yeah. have to kind of that's just a fact it's just a brute fact but oh yeah no no i mean yeah fact but as i say you know yeah but but, but see, i i always hated doing album reviews okay because that's that's one person's opinion yes fair, fair and point. if you put yeah. 10, 10 people in a room and said okay 10 opinions you know you, you probably get 10 opinions like if you had 10 people say, what's your favorite Beatles song? They'd probably come up with about six or yeah. seven versions of it. So yeah. I always had a problem. At, at times early on when you didn't have much music and you didn't have uh, social media, you actually got to do reviews to tell people the record was out. But uh, I was never really was comfortable doing album reviews because, again, yeah. I thought, well, this is my opinion, but somebody else might have a different opinion. So Yes, but shows... As far as shows go, though, you would have had to uh, write reviews on certain concerts and stuff. Yeah. And some would be good and some would be maybe tepid or, or worse. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and generally, most, most bands put on decent shows because it's their fans that are actually watching the yeah. show. I mean, you see there's certain instances where it was actually so bad that, you know, even the fans <laughs> turned on them. But, you know, for the mo- most part, and again learning from that Stampeders experience, um, you know, it's, you, you kind of want to have people with an open mind. You hate to really press your opinion on anything. Uh, you kind of leave it open. Yeah. 
And then I brought up uh, the Keith Moon story, but then you you had mentioned that uh, Pete Sa- Pete Townsend was one of the best interviews that you did. Yeah. Well, again, that's about re- about being prepared. I mean, this is like supposedly after the Who had broken up, and he had a a solo album called White City, and uh, it was just coming out. And one is called "Obviously Want to Talk to Pete Townsend in New York." Of course, they do. <laughs> yeah. So it went fine, but you you can only talk about White City. You can't talk about the Who. You can't talk about that publishing uh, controversy that he had or anything like that. Mm. But fortunately for me, I found out that there was a long-form video that had come out about the story on White City, what the story was all about. So I was able to see the video before I went down to New York. And I got there, and I got into his room, and, of course, the woman, the publicist, again, can't talk about the who, can't talk about, you can only talk about White City. So I went into the room, and I said, White City, uh, South Africa Road, Queen's Park Rangers football ground. Went, you know what White City is? <laughs> went, yeah. So we got talking and, you know, about the concept of White City and the fact that nobody in America knew anything about it. There's a, a song that called uh, Face to Face with Jimmy Somerville. That's Great. all that people saw was one song. So we're talking away. And this woman kept coming back. Going, okay, you got 20 minutes. Okay, you got... 15 minutes, and, and we're getting really into a heavy conversation. And when she came back the last time, she says, okay, you walk to the door, lock the door. She said, right, follow me. I went up into his private suite. He called down and canceled all the rest of the interviews for that day. Wow. And we talked for about two hours. <laughs> and he talked about the who, and he talked about his publishing thing. Yeah. And uh, he said, I want, you know, I'd like a copy of that story when you finish with it. So I sent him a mm-hmm. copy of it. And he sent me his really nice letter back with an autograph picture. And he says, by the way, if you ever need to talk to me again, you know, here's my contact. Yeah. And I've talked to him a few times since. But again, just being being prepared. Yeah. I mean, I felt sorry for anybody that tried to interview him and didn't know about White City because there's not much to talk about. So well, yeah, that was one of one of the one of my better interviews. Yeah, and having interviewed many people myself, they, they get a lot of the same sort of trite kind of questions and 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 it's just sometimes a radio hit or a TV hit and it's just quick and very facile, I guess I would say. Well, again, with with, with phone interviews, it's it's really bad because you you don't have a face to face contact with yeah. someone, yeah. and it could get quite at any point they could put the phone down. That's why you know I, I like to talk about football with British people, like say Robert Plant mm-hmm. talking about Wolverhampton Wanderers rather than Led Zeppelin. Yeah, set me up to talk about Led Zeppelin or the two the two Gallagher brothers from Oasis yeah. who don't ever do interviews together. But when I showed up in my Manchester City football shirt, it's like, yeah, got to talk to him. <laughs> so I'm sitting there having pints talking about Manchester City football team. So, I mean, again, you know, that just little things like that. If you if you know something a little bit different and yeah. can get that going, that just sparks their interest yeah. and allows them to, you know, to, to, you know, to fully do so the interview. who really impressed you? I mean, you know, I've, I've, been around the music business my whole life mostly on the west coast because i didn't tour but met lots of people and i must say like some of the stars that you meet are very impressive human beings and others not so much and then of course you got the drug thing some of them are drugged out or aloof or just in an odd headspace so you must have been through all of that on a much larger scale than i have been i've, I've actually been really lucky uh i i, I can honestly say probably that the the, the the toughest two interviews i ever did one was with Sting, who is notorious 
for being a bad interview, just not into it, being flippant, you know, uh, not being, you know, good. And then I talked to Joe Perry when he was heavily on drugs. Mm -hmm. And after about five minutes in, I says, Joe, I said, you know, I don't think we should do this interview, you know. He went, yeah, thank you. (laughs) And he put the phone down. And then his publicist called him and said, thank you for doing that because we didn't really want him to talk to you. But uh, no, for the most part, I've gone in with an idea that they're agreeing to do the interview because they want to do the interview. Now, the quality of the interview determines by how much you know preparation you've done. Mm-hmm. But generally, most people will want to at least you know get the basics of the new album or the tour or whatever up. So sure, it's yeah. generally not that painful to do the interviews. But yeah, yeah, I mean, some are obviously better than others. So who who are some of the best ones that you interviewed or the, or the people that just impressed you as human beings? I guess that's that's what I look at because to me the human factor uh, trumps the music factor. I mean, you can be successful in music, have written a couple songs, whatever, but if you're a good human being, I mean that that matters more, right? Well, the people that have impressed me, I mean, I got obviously Pete Townsend was one and David Bowie mm-hmm. had a, a great conversation with him in Australia. And, you know, again, you think of him being a superstar, but he's just this normal guy. And after a while, you just realize you're just talking to this normal guy. Yeah. And same when I want to talk to George Harrison at uh, the, um, in, you know, the Royal York in, in, in Toronto. I mean, yeah. me and a guy called Nicholas Jennings interviewed him together. And Nicholas said, okay, I'll do the movie questions. You do the music questions. <laughs> and we kind of, you know, kind of teamed up on him that way. And, Again, after a while, you just forget you're talking to a Beatle, you're talking to this guy. Yeah. And, you know, again, with, with, with most of the, most of the, the, of the Canadian people are great. You know, Alan Fruth, Blast Tiger, Brian, yeah. the Lover Boy guys. Uh, I mean, you know, they're, uh, they understand what you're trying to do. And they understand that they're going to benefit if they get a good, you know, get good, good, good yeah. press out of it. Well, and the other fact is that you were there when these guys were just coming up as well, right? You meet these guys when they're, they're not superstars yet. You know, when you have, you obviously had a good connection with Alan Frew. He wrote the forward to your book, right? Yeah. What's your connection with Alan Frew? Oh gosh. Uh, well, again, with Musicland, when we first launched with Musicland, they had their first album coming out in America. And Musicland said to me, you, you can't just bombard us with, with Canadian stories. It's got to be legitimate. And I says, well, these guys are, you know, in the charts in America. So I wrote the story about uh, Glass Tiger in Musicland. Of course, it had a full distribution, mm-hmm. and they liked it. And I said to, to, to Glass Tiger, what well, you might want to do, because they were playing in Minneapolis opening for Tina Turner, I believe it was. And I said, well, go into their office, put a little show on at their head office. Mm-hmm. And they went in, and they said it just boosted sales, like, you know, hundred percent. Oh, wow. So they understood that. And as I say, you know, through the American situation, we promoted them. And when we did our award show in, uh, in Mississauga, Mississauga in 1989, that Joe Fillion kids, kids that got badly burned, Alan helped me organize it. And of course, band played. Oh, nice. And, uh, he's just been a really great guy. And of course, Scottish, we talk football. Yes. Yeah. He's a, big Glasgow Rangers fan. So, yeah, I mean, again, it's just uh, been someone that, you know, I can call up. I mean, Lee Aaron's the same and, you know, the Liverpool guy's the same. Miles Goodwin from April Wine. I have a good relationship with him. And it's just, again, I mean, because they know who we are, we've been around a long time and they feel we've treated them fairly in the past. 
Yeah. That, you know, hey, they, they continue on. And again, when they they were coming up, like like in your book, you recount lots of examples of the, the, the Lee Aarons and even the Sheriff, the story you sh- shared about Sheriff and, <laughs> and all these other things. That these bands were just coming up. They were just forming and, and, and trying to make something of themselves too, right? And you were right there. Well, it's funny because I, for the longest time, I wasn't going to do a book. I was like, who the hell cares about doing a book? And then a guy called Doug Wong out of Calgary, he said, hey, you know, there's, there's history there, all those tours and all the yeah. things you've done. You should, chronic, you, know, you should chronicle it. Well, unfortunately, when kind of Music Express folded and uh, I had a passing on the way to Alan Gregg and Alan Gregg took it over for a little while, all my research stuff was left with the office. Right. But uh, somebody, a friend of mine was a, a guy at the University of Toronto Library he says, I think we got every single copy of your book in the oh, library. Of the so I went to the library and there they all were. So I was able to do a you know, chronological kind of uh, story of, of the magazine. So he had every copy of the music. Every Express single thing. one. Oh, wow. Every single one. So that was just, you know, a treasure trove of wow. research. And uh, I was able to get the book out. And then, you know, again, you know, in sort of like 2008, we said, okay, it's just not happening anymore. So I say writing the book, but when you write a book, you don't get paid until after it's yes. finished. Yeah. So I had to find a job. So I started working as a security officer uh, with a company first called G4S. And I was working at the CNE and doing the band shell security and trooper on stage. Oh. And I'm standing right in front of them, you know, guarding the people from running the stage. And Brian and Ray are looking down at me going, like, what the hell are you doing down there? <laughs> So after they finished, they came over and said, "Hey, you know, should we should get that magazine going again? Yeah, because you know we need it. Yeah, but but you know, but, but don't do it by print. It's do do it, you know, did digitally. So I'm on the train back home that day. I went, oh, why not? So we launched it digitally, and it's brilliant because, as I say, now I can do it on a day to day basis. Unfortunately, say David Bowie drops dead yeah. within 20 minutes. You've got a story out. Yeah. You've got the video. You've got the music." If there's a mistake made, you can correct it. Yeah, and uh, it's just great. And you know, to this day, I'm I'm doing it. I, I interviewed Classified yesterday, oh, nice. the rap guy. Yeah, and uh, you know, we got, we got the videos and we got the story, and it's just great that we we'll continue doing it. A lot of the people that from that time are still happening. Yes, and again, there's all the new people as well. Yes. You know, there are Kells and Glorious Sons and yeah. Strumbellas and all those bands. So again, it's just a so a mixture of you know, of both of the the new people yeah. and and the established people. So and that that's well, let's do a promo for that right now. The Music TheMusicExpress.ca, and I, I signed up for it. I got the uh, notifications coming in my my inbox now and stuff. It's just rich with content, lots of great stuff and backstories and lots of, lots of good stuff. So I'd recommend people go and check it out. So the the title of the book is The Music Express: Rise, Fall, and Resurrection of Canada's Music Magazine. That's correct. So, and you you resurrected the magazine in was it twenty fourteen? Uh, yeah, in, 20, in digital form. Yes, yeah, I think yeah, twenty twelve, right? Sorry, yeah, twenty twelve. Twenty twelve, right? Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. it's been ten years now, and you're fully yeah, engaged. yeah, rolling along with it, rolling along. I mean, again, it's you know, it's, it's sort of uh, never going to be quite the way it was, but the record industry is not quite the way it is, but it's, yes. it's, it's changed as the industry's changed. I mean, it's all social media now and, uh, you know, I'm working on that and I've also, you know, yeah. I'm booking, I'm actually managing a couple of bands. I'm managing oh, nice. a band from Montreal called The Box. Good for you. 
and a couple of things. And yeah, you know, keep involved in the industry. So what's the revenue stream online? You still sell advertising there or do you have sponsors? No, as much so. I mean, again, the thing about it is because of all the advertising revenue has now gone to social media. Yes. Uh, so that's a bit tricky. But again, with with the other things, like say the booking of the bands and, uh, you know, uh, managing bands you know that's yeah that's that's sufficient to keep the thing rolling yes well it's funny because when in the first you know couple dozen interviews that i that i did when we launched this podcast i used to ask people how how the music business has changed over the last 50 years and it usually people just laughed <laughs> it's just completely well, there's, there's no there's nobody flying you to germany anymore <laughs> to interview a band let's put it that way uh i mean again yeah i mean it, 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 it will never be the same. But then again, you had record shops, you had record companies spending thousands of dollars oh, on yeah. promotion. And I mean, as I say, when we did the music magazine in America, that was the thing. Okay, well, you want that band on the cover? Yeah. Got an interview. Well, where are they? Well, they're in, uh, you know, Australia right now. Fine. Fly me to Australia. Yeah. So when I did David Bowie, was flying me to Australia, you know, and uh, I, I toured with a band called Helix, yeah. Canadian band, and they were touring with Kiss yeah. in Europe. So yes. wouldn't it be a great angle if we if I did the tour with Kiss and Helix? Yeah. So like you, that mentioned that, guy. you mentioned that in your book, and you said that the venues were quite small. You were a bit surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was the very first tour that Kiss did without the makeup on. Right. And uh, I went to, you know, off and back and – Munich and they were really small halls. I mean, I didn't even know. I didn't even believe that was the hall. I looked to the posters on the wall, on the door. And like, coming next week, Def Leppard went, "Geez." Yeah. And and again, halfway through, they had to abandon a lot of their equipment and stuff hmm. because it was small. I mean, obviously they're huge now, yeah. but uh, again, a funny story with Kiss when they first came out. They did this Western Canadian tour with cheap with cheap trick opening, and uh, they played in Lethbridge, then they played in Calgary. And this guy, Ken, Ken, Ken Graydon from Polygram, says, you should interview Kiss. So he said, fine. He says, go down to the Calgary end this time and interview the Kiss. So I showed up and I got the road manager. And he says, okay, well, Gene is in the cafeteria. So I'm walking down to the cafeteria. I'm thinking, I'm not supposed to know what this guy looks like. <laughs> so I walked in and I kid you not, there were two little old ladies having afternoon tea and this one guy by himself, long hair, big, Silver dollar signs on his boots, and went, that must be Gene. <laughs> so we got him famously, and okay. he is again. Talk about interview with guys. He is really, really nice guy. Aside from him being, you know, a star, he doesn't forget you. He remembers when he talked to you before, hmm. and is very, uh, you know, amenable, and he's fairly easy to talk to. Well, also he's intelligent, but he never got caught up in the drugs and booze thing either, right? Like th those guys, him and Paul Stanley were known for being clean and sober guys right they were serious businessmen yeah he, he he just he just had a problems with pornography oh yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> so but uh what what's the, the most of you have some funny interviews that you did or the funniest things that happened well you know again uh oh uh, uh i'm trying to think of his name now um uh, there was I'm trying to think of the guy's name now. He was a, a, a soap opera guy. I can't think of his name now, but he was like big in Calgary. Oh. And we were talking to him and he was talking about, you know, a, on, in the newspaper that day, there was a plane crash 
of uh, some two planes that collided in midair. Damn, I'm trying to think of his name now. But anyway, but he was talking about, you know, if, a, if he was on, ever on a plane that was crashing and they knew it crashing, what he would do? He said, oh, I would just grab the nearest wet, uh, air hostess. <laughs> and I put that in the story and the publicist got all of me and says, you can't do that. <laughs> You're just making him look bad. Um, again, well, and, and I suppose an interesting, it wasn't funny, but I mean, it was kind of weird. was April Wine. I interviewed Miles Goodwin. And, uh, you know, Miles is a very kind of, you know, uh, opinionated person, shouldn't we say? I interviewed him about two months ago, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and he said that, um, you were talking about one of his albums, uh, that uh, it, it sort of like was getting flack from the rest of the band that he was writing everything and getting all the publishing for everything and that they weren't getting there anything. So he said, right, the hell with it. He says, I'm going to leave. You guys do an album. And I'll come back and I'll sing on it. So he comes back after a couple of months. And of course, nobody had done anything. Yeah. <laughs> so he's telling me all this. He said, you know something? And I, they did a, 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 an album called uh, Number of the Beast, I believe it's called. And, and it's, uh, nature. Sorry? Nature, nature. Nature of the Beast. Nature of the Beast. Nature of the Beast. Nature of the Beast. And on the cover was like three guitar players. It looked like a, you know, like Iron Maiden or Judas Priest yeah. or something. Says, but in, in actual fact, when you play, you don't come across that way. And he said, well, yeah, he says, and I don't, I don't need three guitar players. He says, matter of fact, I don't even, if I could play drums, I'd play drums myself. I don't need these guys. So I said, are you sure that you want me to put that in the story? Yeah, 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 Fine. Yeah. So I put that in the story. Paper magazine comes out. I get a phone call from his manager. He said, do you realize that you have just, you know, trashed April wine and they will never play together again? And I said, well, I just played the tape. I said, do you want to hear the tape? And they went, mm, no, that's, yeah. that's Miles. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, again, it was just kind of like, an, you know, an interesting situation. Yeah. But, uh, oh, oh, again, uh, Michel Pagliero was one. Um, I interviewed him because he had all these English songs, but he's in French, right? Yeah. And I'm talking to him, and he's really having a hard time with the interview. And I said, oh, yeah, I've been promised to this uh uh, I, I don't speak English very well. Like, I'm having a hard time understanding you. I'm like, okay, fine. So I stopped the interview. A week later, he's in Calgary, and it's for a press event. And I'm sitting next to him, but he doesn't know who I am. And he's talking away in perfect oh, English. Yeah. <laughs> so so he I said to him, you <laughs> I said, Michelle, I said, uh, you've picked up English really fast since our last conversation, like two weeks ago. Jeez. And he said, yeah, I'm sorry. He said, I just didn't feel like talking to you then, but that was the easiest way to put you off. So, Wow. Yeah. Well, but, you, but, I mean, most of the times people are pretty good. Yeah. Well, you got so many interesting stories, and I could keep you here for three days, but I, I can I do a little rapid fire here at the end? Yeah. Are you okay go with ahead. that? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so after Music Express, you had Access Magazine. What was that all about? Well, again, it was like because Alan Gregg, you know, basically wanted, you know, felt, that uh, the magazine, you know, needed a fresh approach after okay. the whole mu music land sound thing. So he, he, he basically fired me <laughs> yep. from my own magazine. And then right afterwards, it all fell apart. So there wasn't one. Okay. So I said, well, fine. I'll get access going again. And that's, that kind of replaced Music Express for a while. Okay. And then when you did the U.S. Uh, magazine, you changed that name to Rock Express? Well, that was... <laughs> Yeah, because initially they, they, they felt Music Express was too general. Okay. But then again, uh, when uh, we put it out, 
the basically one of the uh, one of their distributors had a, a line of merchandise called Rock Express, so they were going to sue us. Okay. So we brought it back to Music Express. Oh, okay, I got you. I, I I didn't quite get that, but uh, yeah, okay. I wanted to ask you about that. And then, so you had Danny Bonaducci as a writer for you for a little while. Oh God, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, this is you know after we'd lost the music land deal, we wanted to do something to kind of you know get the image going. And I'd seen Don, Danny Bonaducci on a, on, a, on a talk show. And he was talking about, you know, how he was down on his luck and uh, yeah. nobody wanted to hire him and how, you know, he had a cultural thing. So he was performing in a, in a Toronto uh, comedy show, comedy place mm-hmm. called. Uh, so I went and I, you know, I, I talked to him. I says, hey, well, why don't you write a column for us? I mean, you've got all that cultural experience in your name and, Partridge family. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So we, we had him for about four issues, I think. Okay. And we were paying him a lot of money. We were paying like $500 US for the column. Yeah. Uh, but his wife called up and was complaining about money and about how fast she was getting it and talked to the wrong person because she talked to my business partner, Connie Coots, who basically told her to get lost. Mm, okay. So then he called up and he quit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there you so go. Okay. That was the end of that. I was just curious about that because he's such a funny guy. And he's, he's, he was he's great, nice. you know, yeah. and his column was great. But, I mean, yeah. again, you know, the, the, the other half yeah. got involved and that kind of there ruined it for him. So, uh, and the other question is, did you ever get caught up in that rock and roll lifestyle, like the, the pitfalls, and or did oh, you God. stay level-headed or – Oh yeah, I stay. I stay level-headed. I mean, again, the thing about it was, I mean, you tour with bands, and you do see what they go through. Yeah. And Iron Maiden was a perfect example. I mean, uh, the guys themselves were great. The roadies, well, that was another story. But you see, every day after they finish the gig, you know, the record company, the radio station wants to party, wants to do anything, wants to bring in the guests and everything. And, you know, they kind of like, you know, put up with it. But it's, it's got to be tough on them day in, day out. I mean, yeah. I was with them for like two weeks and they were on like a six-month tour. Gee. And I was exhausted after <laughs> two weeks. So God knows how yeah. they felt. But you kind of see, you know, how they do need that kind of, you know, artificial stimulation to keep going. Well, and personally, nah, uh, you know, I mean, again, Rock journalists don't don't attract groupies. <laughs> yeah, no, I just wonder so. <laughs> because you're around. I mean, all the, the you know the the dancers and the drugs and the partying and and stuff. We saw some of it. You yeah. saw some of it, and you know, and again, it's sort of part of the course. But for the most part, um, the people I was with were well behaved. Okay, and then so looking back on your career, was there anything that you would change, like uh, the decisions you made or the how it was oh, handled? God. The only thing I would have changed was a meeting with Musicland in New York, the Empress, um, when we met to talk about, you know, continuing the contract. And they were, you know, the two guys, Jack Euster and Gary Ross, they're really into it, uh, but they wanted a percentage of our company before mm. it just been a distribution deal. And... I kind of said, well, I can't make that decision because I've got two of the partners back in, in Canada. Now, what I should have said was, okay, I'll tell you what, let's start an American magazine with you guys printed in America and do a Canadian magazine with my two partners 
and I could, and I had Westwood One Radio involved, wanted to get involved. Hmm. But then again, that would have been throwing my two business partners under the bus. Right. And I just didn't feel like doing that. And then, of course, they, they turned around and dropped us anyway. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, again, you, you, again, I'm sure you've had the same situation. Yeah. You know, had I done this, but then again, other things wouldn't have happened. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's just, you know, fate and all that stuff. And you, you, nev- just, you, you never know. see the path you don't take. No, so, you don't. And, and yeah. as I say, I, I look at that going, well, if we'd have been the, this huge American magazine and I'd moved to New York or something, what would have happened? Yeah. But then again, look at you look at the downside of what has happened in Canada since. So, yeah. 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 So then Wife that ties is, into so. my last question, which is, you know, personally, what did you sacrifice personally for your success that you achieved? And was it worth it? Like the traveling? Oh, abs- yeah. absolutely. I mean, I... I I was working with, with the Calgary Herald and I was doing sports and I did the music magazine as a sideline. And the thing about sports is it's kind of the same thing all the time. You get a schedule of a hockey team. Yeah. You just know that on March 24th, I'm going to be in Edmonton and blah, blah, blah. So you kind of cover that off. And the, the, the music magazine just was like, it was started out as a hobby and then you know, I could see the potential of it being full time, and you know, yeah. my, with my partner Connie Koontz, she encouraged me. So we moved to tr- Toronto, and it just—you you never quite knew what the game plan was moving yeah. forward, but you just yeah. kind of went with the flow. And the American thing came out of the blue, and then we had a bit of a downside when we lost the Music Land thing. But then again, the upside was getting access going again, yeah, and that allowed me to you know do that, write the book, and then. You know, after that, it's been kind of like, you know, still doing some security guard stuff, yeah. getting into the music magazine, getting into management, getting into booking. So it's yeah. all been an ongoing adventure. Well, good. And, and I recommend it highly. Uh, I was able to read the book and I appreciate that. I bought it in, in digital format, but it's also you can buy hard copies, I assume, as well. Yep. And the book is called Just go to Amazon. <laughs> yeah. The Music Express, Rise, Fall and Resurrection of Canada's Music Magazine. So I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me. And My uh, pleasure. Thank you, sir. Many thanks to Keith Sharp for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his incredible experiences in the music business. And more information is available, as mentioned, at themusicexpress.ca. Check it out. Great website. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. And we also invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio to hear music from the Canadian artists you hear on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan here.